Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 33, verses 1 to 10. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. Genesis 33, verses 1 to 10. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near, and they their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of the Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Our other scripture is from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5. For even when you came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he has comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. We're doing a series that uh, I've been calling Through the Storm, and the idea here, of course, is that we often find ourselves in life in storms, metaphorical for difficulties in life. We wish we could avoid those kind of storms, somehow go around them and avoid them, but of course, most of the time, we cannot do that. We wish that we were, when we were in them, actually, that somehow we could get out of them, but again, most of the time, that's simply not possible. We must go through the storms. And so the whole point of this series is to equip us, to enable us on how do we actually go through these storms that we can't avoid, we can't wish away, we got to actually go through. And so today what I want to do is talk about a very specific way that God meets with us in the middle of our storms to enable us to go through the storms. A very specific way. In fact, I think we often, I want to suggest that I think we often miss this way because this way is so ordinary, it's so unspectacular, it's so plain, I think that we often miss it. So for instance, 
I think one of the storms that we'll always find ourselves in often during our lives is having to make a major decision, a life-altering decision. And if you're ever in that moment, it's a bit of a storm because it stresses you out. You have all kinds of options maybe or there's difficult decisions to make. There's a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of stress around trying to seek guidance on what kind of decision you should actually make. And so when you're in those kind of moments, Christians often say, God, I need to hear from you. I need you to speak to me, to show me. And so we want to hear God's voice speak to us. And maybe we, want, we say, God, I want some sort of sign from heaven. And Christians even do thing, crazy things like the whole thing with fleeces and all these kind of things. There's lots to be said about all those things. But here's what I've noticed as a pastor. Many of my counseling, counseling things I've done with people would suggest that people find this difficult. I've had Christians come to me and say, I don't really feel like I hear God's voice. I know I've heard stories of other people saying God spoke to them and told them to do something. I don't feel like I've ever had that. I feel like when I'm in those moments, I don't know where God is. I don't feel like God is giving me guidance. I don't understand this whole thing about the fleeces and all that. It doesn't work for me. They become very disillusioned. Maybe they feel like they're second-class Christians or that God simply does not speak to them. And yet what I want to suggest to you this morning is that in those moments when you're seeking guidance, God may have been speaking to you over and over again, but he was doing it in such ordinary ways, such plain ways, that maybe you missed it because you were looking for something too spectacular. Or another storm I think that we always will find ourselves in throughout our lives is a storm where we just feel overwhelmed by grief and by sorrow. The waves of grief and sorrow come into the boat of our lives and we feel like we're going to sink. We just feel overwhelmed. So perhaps, for instance, you struggle with loneliness or depression. Maybe your marriage fell apart. Maybe you miscarried. Maybe your spouse died. In those moments when we find ourselves in that kind of a storm, we cry out for God. We're like, where are you, God? And we cry out with the words of Job when he said in the middle of his grief, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Where, where are you, God? I want to know where I can find you. I need comfort. I need strength. Where is this God? I got to find him. I need this comfort. And again, Christians come and say, I don't feel like I sense God in the storm. But again, I want to suggest to you, there are many ways to think about this, but perhaps we've been missing how God has been meeting with us, comforting us, and strengthening us within the storm because he did it in such an ordinary, plain, and unspectacular way. So, what is this ordinary and obvious way that God meets with his people to enable them to be able to go through the storm? Maybe we could talk about Bible reading. You read the Bible, God will meet with you. We could do that. How about prayer? Yeah, that would be good. Maybe creation. Job was struck by creation, helped him to get through his grief. Those are all good ways, they're all true, but what I want to look at today is something even more ordinary, even more commonplace than that. This morning I want to show you this way, tell you a story to to show it by example, and then I want to apply it to three storms that we face in our life. Those storms when we need comfort, we need guidance, and we need forgiveness. Okay, so here's the first thing I want to show you is the undramatic, unspectacular, wonderfully ordinary way God meets us in the storm. How's that for a lot of words? 
<laughs> of course, I could have made it a whole lot shorter, but I'm really trying to make a point here. I want to talk about the undramatic, unspectacular, wonderfully ordinary way that God often meets us in the storm. So what I want to do here is I want to tell you a story about how God met with a man named Jacob in the midst of a massive storm in his life and how that enabled him to get through the storm that he was facing. So the story was read for us in Genesis 33, but here's a little bit of the background for you. Jacob had a twin brother whose name was Esau. They grew up together 20 years before the events that we're going to look at in Genesis 33 that was read for us earlier. Jacob had cheated his brother Esau out of something really big. It was a really big deal, and Esau was so angry, he was so embittered by this, he made a vow that he was going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to flee lest he face the wrath of his twin brother. And so for 20 years, these two brothers never saw one another. Jacob fled the scene. And during those 20 years, Jacob goes and he gets married. Uh, He has 12 sons. He accumulates a ton of wealth. His life kind of starts moving along. But a day came when Jacob was forced to take all of his servants, all of his massive family, and he had to go through the territory where Esau lived. So as he looked out and he considered what he had to do, he saw a giant storm brewing on the horizon. In other words, he knew if he did this, he was going to have to encounter Esau, and he had great fear in his heart because he knew the vow that Esau had made to kill him 20 years earlier. And so Jacob sent messengers ahead of himself to ask for Esau's favor. These messengers come back, and they say to Jacob, Esau is coming And he's coming with 400 men. And so in Genesis 32, verse 7, we read, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And so he does three things. First of all, he divides up his camp into two camps. His his family, his 12 kids, his grandkids, all his servants divides them into two camps so that if one gets attacked, maybe the other one will survive. Secondly, he prays to God in the midst of his storm and says, God, I need you to rescue me out of this storm. And then third and finally, he sends some caravans, some wagons filled with gifts. Remember, Jacob is wealthy now. Filled with gifts ahead of him to meet Esau, to give him all these gifts, hopefully to appease Esau as Esau comes toward him. But Esau keeps coming. The storm is drawing nearer. And so in Genesis 31, 33 verse 1, we read, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. 400 men, surely he's thinking these are fighting men. It's a small army. Esau is out for blood, and he's going to wipe out Jacob's entire family and everything with him. And so Esau now, he says he looked and he saw him, so maybe he's like a kilometer away, maybe like 800 meters away. And Jacob, in a last act of desperation to try to do something in this situation, he breaks away from his family. Jacob leaves his family behind. He starts walking towards Esau and the 400 men coming toward him. And every few feet, he just bows down on the ground before Esau. He gets up, he walks some more, bows down, trying to appease the wrath of Esau. And so we read this in verse 3. 
Jacob went on before them, before his family, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So what is near? Maybe 300 meters away now? It's then that Jacob looks up and to his terror, he sees that Esau has also broken away from his 400 men, not just walking towards Jacob, he's running towards him. And surely in this moment, Jacob thought, oh, it's the end for me. This is how my life ends. My brother is going to kill me in front of my entire family while his 400 men cheer him on. But Jacob could never have guessed what was going to happen next. Here's what verse 4 says. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him like Middle Eastern men do on the cheeks And they wept. I cannot help but wonder if when Jesus told his parable of the prodigal son, he had this exact scenario in mind. Do you remember the words that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 15? He said this, telling the story about the son returning. While he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What a moment. The son in Jesus' story knows he doesn't deserve the favor of his father over what he has done. Jacob knows he does not deserve the favor of Esau. Jacob knows what he's done. He knows that he was wrong. He knows he doesn't deserve any sort of acceptance or mercy. And yet clearly God has been at work in Esau's life over the years. Not only does Esau not seek revenge, apparently Esau's not even holding a grudge. Esau gives Jacob more than just forgiveness. He embraces him and accepts him. And in that moment, Jacob is experiencing God's grace. In that moment, he realizes he had prayed to God to rescue him. He'd asked God to rescue him, and God had granted his prayer, but even more than just rescue. God had given him not just rescue from his brother, God had given him reconciliation with his brother. And so Jacob sees God through all of this. And so he even tries to give Esau back, or sorry, Esau tries to give Jacob back all the gifts that he had sent on, and Jacob just refuses. He says, no, no, I want you to keep them. And it's then that we come to the main point everything that I'm trying to get at now with deep emotion we read these words in verse 10 Jacob said no please if I have found favor in your sight then accept my present from my hand for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me do you see it then what is this undramatic, unspectacular, wonderfully ordinary way that God meets us in the middle of the storm? Answer, God meets us through other people. God meets us through other people, ordinary, unspectacular, plain people. Jacob is, says he's seeing God's face in the face of Esau. 
Seeing your face, Esau, is like I'm seeing the very face of God. I see God in you. Jacob, Jacob is saying God is meeting with him through his brother Esau. So it's through Esau's acceptance of him that Jacob is experiencing God's acceptance. It's through Esau's forgiveness that Jacob is experiencing God's forgiveness. So here's the big point. Too often we separate God's actions, what God does to work in our lives, from people and how people help us. So on the one hand, of course, we'll say, yes, I believe that God meets with people through prayer, through Bible reading. Yes, absolutely, we believe that. On the other hand, we say, yes, I know that people can help us, and I know I can encourage other people, but somehow we kind of can separate these things so it's either God meeting with us or it's people helping us or us helping other people. But what I'm trying to get you to see here is that the Bible wants us to combine these things, that God meets us through other people. That's why he can say the words, I have seen your face, Esau, which is like seeing the face of God. So this isn't very spectacular, is it? I mean, sometimes God meets us in storms and sometimes even those rare moments when a true miracle happens. And praise God that miracles happen. Sometimes God meets us in the storm through his word, through personal prayer. Yes and amen. He does that wonderful praise his name. Sometimes he also meets us in the storm by making us stand in awe of creation. We go out onto one of our great West Coast forest trails or something and it refreshes our soul and we feel like we met with God. Yes, wonderful. We thank you, Lord. God meets with us through all of these ways. But one of the most common ways that God meets with us in the middle of a storm is through ordinary, plain, other day, everyday people. So you're, you're in a conversation with someone, and they just strengthen you. Maybe it's just a simple a word of encouragement. Maybe it's a hug. Oh, I miss hugs during COVID, don't you? How about a handshake? I'd take a handshake right now. We just, those kind of things are so important to us. God meeting with us through other people. It's all really undramatic. It's really unspectacular, but we know when we've met with someone else and we feel strengthened, we feel encouraged, we need to walk away and say, wow, seeing your face, that other person, is like seeing the face of God. So that's the principle. That's the way that God meets us through the storm is through this undramatic, unspectacular, wonderfully ordinary way of God encountering us through other people to enable us to get through the storm. Now what I want to do is take that concept, tell three more stories, and show three ways that God does this with particular storms. Okay, so let's go deeper into this, and in the second place, let's talk about how God comforts us, our need for comfort, how God comforts us through other people. So we all go through these kind of storms, right? This is the kind of storm where you're praying to God to come help you, and you're saying something like, Lord, I'm just so lonely right now. I'm just so sad right now. I, Father, I don't even know how I can go on. And so we begin to pray and we say, God, I need you to strengthen me. I need to meet with you. I'm kind of at my wit's end here. God, this is not easy for me. I need you to comfort me. Now, how do you expect that God is going to answer that prayer? 
Well, he could answer it in many ways. But let me tell you a story from the life of the Apostle Paul that shows one major way how God answers that prayer. He writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. He describes a storm that he's in. He says, when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 2 Corinthians is one of Paul's most painful books. The whole book is pain. It's all of his struggles. Paul, yeah, we know him as the mighty apostle, but Paul is also human, just like the rest of us. And the storm that he is in in this moment as he writes 2 Corinthians, he feels like his life is like a ship that's just breaking apart. He says he's afflicted at every turn. In other words, constant problems going on in his life. Just one problem after another. Nothing good seems to be happening. He's opposed by people without Things outside of himself are opposing him. And then this is creating, all these situations are creating fears within him. So he's struggling desperately within. He's got problems without. Paul needs comfort for his heart. So he prays for it. So how did God answer Paul's prayer? Well, one day, Paul was maybe in a house and the door opened. And an angel walked through the door. Now you might say, That's what I'm talking about. I mean, like the story of Peter when he's in prison and an angel comes and opens the door when he prays to God. That's what I'm asking for, God, when I'm in those moments and I need comfort. That would be pretty great if you would do that for me. If the door would open and an angel would walk through the door, that would bring me the strength and comfort that I need. Well, to be even more accurate, it's not technically literally literally an angel. It's actually God who walks through the door. You might say, well, I don't know quite what that means, but that sounds great. I mean, asking God to comfort you and strengthen you, and then the door opens and, and God walks through the door? That's an answer to prayer. That's what, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. It was God who walked through the door. It was also an angel who walked through the door. An angel literally is a messenger of God. And so you might say, well, was it an angel? Was it God? Answer, Yes. Paul, in his darkest moment, afflicted from without, fears within, prayed for God's help. The door opened and in walked through that door a perfectly ordinary man named Titus. Titus was Paul's friend. And we don't know what they talked about, but what we do know is that when they were done talking, Paul felt that he had been greatly comforted and greatly strengthened in order to move on. Now, you might say, well, Barton, you've kind of been deceiving us, talking about angels and God walking through the door. It wasn't really an angel. It wasn't really God who came. No, no, no. I really meant that. I'm trying to be very accurate here. It was God who walked through the door. And if you don't think so, it's because, again, you're dividing something that the Bible doesn't divide. I'm trying to say, let's bring something together. And just to make this absolutely crystal clear to you, listen to what Paul himself writes. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But who? But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So, question for you, 
who comforted Paul. Paul says it. He says, verse 6, but it's God who comforts the downcast. It's God who comforted us. God's the one who walked through the door. God is the one who brought the comfort. But how did God do it? He goes on and he says this, God did it by the coming of Titus. By the coming of Titus. That just perfectly captures it, doesn't it? God's the one who did it. God's the one who comforted him. And God did it through his messenger, a perfectly ordinary guy named Titus. So think of all the times in life where you have been comforted by another person. Maybe you got an email from somebody and it just comforted you. Maybe it was a phone call. Recognize that was God. Maybe you spent an evening with some friends and after that evening you felt greatly strengthened to continue on. Listen, that was God. Yes, God was doing it through an ordinary person who was just like you, a normal human being, but you need to recognize that was God who was doing it. So we often wonder in the middle of a storm, why isn't God meeting with me? But what I'm trying to suggest to you this morning is he's meeting with you all the time. And one of the ways that he does this is to meet with you through the comfort of other people so that if you are done, if you feel comforted by someone and you walked away from a conversation and you're like, okay, I feel strengthened, comforted, follow Christ more, you need to say of that person in your own mind, if not to their face, maybe to encourage them back, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. You know, normally it's my role to be pastoring people, to care for the flock. And it's my great joy to do so, to go to, been in endless hospital rooms, been in hospice, make phone calls, send emails, always trying my best to shepherd the flock, to care for the flock that God has given to me. But you know what, over these past few weeks, I think those roles just flipped for a little short period of time. After Steve's resignation, I think you could probably sense I was feeling like, oh man, lots going on, kind of like Paul. Lots of things happening, and I knew you didn't know yet, but I knew Josh's was also coming up, so all, all the weight of this was on me. And so after Steve's resignation, I got a whole pile of emails and notes from many of you. And I realized in that moment, in the, I'm the one who needs some care in this moment. And I just want to thank you because you pastored your pastor in that moment. I needed some care in that moment, and I must tell you, I, don't, I can't think of a time in recent memory anyways where I have felt so much the sweet encouragement of the people of God, or exactly like Paul said in those words, that God comforted me by you, by your kindness. And so basically by Monday morning after Steve resigned, my comfort was feeling good. I felt strengthened. I have felt strengthened ever since. Of course, sad to leave, lose these guys. Grateful I still have a really great team behind me. And looking forward to seeing what God is going to do in the future. But it was such a tangible example to me of exactly what we're talking about here. That strength. It was not like God literally spoke to me somehow or there was some writing in the sky. It was just a whole bunch of emails, texts, and messages from people, ordinary people, you, that encouraged me and strengthened and comforted me. So I'm sure every one of us can think of moments in our life where others have done that for us. 
where we have felt in comfort, comforted, encouraged, and then we can say to those people, thank you, because your comfort, seeing your face, has been like seeing the face of God for me. God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So that's the first storm where I think we see God meeting with us through other people when we need comfort. Let's talk about now in the second place, or I guess it's the third point, the second application, how God guides us through other people, how he guides us. So back to the introduction when I brought this up, when we're in a moment in life where we have to make a major decision and we're feeling really stressed out and we feel like, I don't know the answer and there's many potential answers and I need guidance and God, I am asking you to speak to me, to reveal to me what it is you want me to do. So maybe it's choosing a job, maybe it's a marriage partner, maybe some other major decision that you need to make. And again, I think so often Christians look for God to speak to them in spectacular ways. And maybe God does that. I don't want to downplay that. He, he does that, especially he seems to do it in all kinds of amazing ways. But I, I want us to right now, this morning, zero in on one of the greatest ways that God helps to guide us is through other wise and trusted people. Probably the most famous classic passage on the will of God is in Romans 12. You've heard it probably many times if you've been in the church. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why should your mind be renewed? So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what this is saying is... There's many situations where there's not just an answer. You can't look in the Bible to know what the answer is. But as you're not conformed to the way the world thinks, as you are conforming your way to the way God thinks, you will learn how to discern, how to test, to know what will please God and what will honor God. You'll know the will of God. That's what that passage is about. But what I want to point out here is there's something that's often neglected as we teach this. We, we often just fail to see it. And what we fail to see is the fact that Paul wrote this, these words about discerning the will of God to a church in Rome. So this passage most certainly would apply to, okay, I need to read the scriptures and pray and live a holy life so that I can discern the will of God, but don't, don't individualize it so much. The direct context of this verse is, Within the body of Christ, within the church, you are not to be conformed. You are to be renewed to your mind. As you're in interaction with other believers, as you're hearing the word taught and preached, that's how you do it. And then as you live this life in community, then you will be able to discern what God's will is for your life. So the call there is to be part of a church, to be under the preaching of the word, to care for one another. To, during COVID, this is not easy. But I hear so many wonderful stories of people in their own church family phoning each other, going on walks outside together, doing it at whatever the rules, whatever the rules allow us. People being faithful, tuning in still to Sunday mornings and saying, okay, I want to still do this. That's the vision here of Romans 12. You need guidance in your life? You want to know the will of God? Then what this verse is saying to us is God uses other people to help you to discern Guidance. That's why Proverbs 15, verse 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. We can't just, it's just not you, your Bible, and God praying, saying, Give me guidance. It's in community that God meets us in that storm when we need guidance. He meets us through other people. 
Finally, let's talk about how God meets us in forgiveness. This is another big storm I think that we all face, the storm of guilt and shame when we have done something wrong. We've sinned against God, we've sinned against other people, we know what we've done, like Jacob, we know we have done something wrong. And yet that guilt and that shame just overwhelms us. We know we need God's forgiveness. Now, of course, the number one thing you've got to do here if you're going to face and get through this storm is go to the promises in Scripture that promise things like if we confess our sins, God will forgive our sins. You've you got to learn what the Bible says about how God forgives us through Christ and through his death. But here's one other element to it. God also gets us through that storm of our own guilt and shame through other people. For instance, with Jacob, he knew what he did. But when he received Esau's forgiveness, Esau, who did not have to give him any forgiveness, he didn't deserve mercy or acceptance, but when he received that from Esau, his heart melted before that kind of acceptance, before that kind of belonging, and that kind of forgiveness, so they wept together. He was experiencing God's forgiveness through Esau forgiving him. God's forgiveness is made real to him. So have you ever been forgiven by someone? I mean, really, like a moment where you know what you did is wrong. You, you have no excuses whatsoever. You don't deserve anything. And yet whoever that other person is, they just offered you complete forgiveness and acceptance and love. It's one of the most powerful things you can experience in this life. And, and just like Jacob, your heart melts, tears come to your eyes. It's a tremendously emotional experience and a very powerful experience. That person's forgiveness is a mirror of God's forgiveness of you. So let's tell one more story just to bring this one home, also from the story of Paul's life. If you know the story of Paul, before Christ met him, he was actually persecuting Christians, persecuting the church. Uh, Paul has two names. His name is Saul in Hebrew, and then his name is Paul in Greek, and he goes by either name, just like some of my Chinese friends have Chinese names, which I can't pronounce, and they have English names so that I can pronounce them. And so he was Saul uh, in the story in the book of Acts, and as he's going along the road to Damascus, the risen and exalted Christ meets him on the road to Damascus. It's such a powerful encounter, seeing the risen Christ, that he is literally blinded by the light of Christ's presence. And so he is led into the city, into a house where he sits literally in darkness uh, for a few days, waiting to see what is going to happen. And those three, I can't even imagine, went through his mind in those few days. He suddenly realizes that he's been wrong, brutally wrong. He realizes that this Jesus, whom he has been actively opposing, actually is God's promised one, the Messiah, whom he said he's been waiting for all of his life, whom all Jewish people are looking for. And he realizes it was Jesus and I was wrong. Not only that, he then realizes I wasn't just wrong. I've actually been attacking Jesus. I've been persecuting his people. And Jesus himself says, to persecute my people is to persecute me. So Paul is suddenly realizing at that moment that he has been attacking Christ himself. I can't imagine the guilt he must have felt, the shame he must have felt. He was in literal darkness with being blind, but the darkness of his own soul must have been something that just consumed him. 
He can't go back to his old life. Who's going to accept him now? How can he go forward into the new life? He's been persecuting Christians, having them thrown in prison, and even was there overseeing Stephen's death when they stoned him to death with rocks. So he can't, can't go back. He doesn't seem like he can go forward. He's been attacking Christ. His whole world has just collapsed. But God wants to meet with Saul in the storm, the storm of his own guilt and shame. And so God does meet with him. God wants Saul to know the forgiveness that he is going to offer him. And so God tells a man named Ananias, a perfectly ordinary, plain man, a Christian man, to go to the house where Saul is at and to tell him that his sins are forgiven and that he's going to use Saul mightily to spread the good news of Christ around the world. And so there you imagine Saul sitting in this dark room, literally in darkness because he's blind now, working through all the emotions and the thoughts in his heart, and the door opens, and in walks Ananias. And Ananias speaks two words to start. Do you know what those two words were? The two words that he spoke were just like with Esau to Jacob, where those two words melted Saul's heart. The two words literally changed his life and allowed him to experience the forgiveness of God. Ananias walked in the room, put his hand on Saul and said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. That single one word brother has all of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God in it. For what does that single word say? The single word brother says, Saul, what you did against Christ truly was wicked. It was wrong, and there's absolutely no excuse for it. However, God is a God of great grace and mercy. And God has forgiven your sins. Not only has God forgiven you, he's adopted you into his family. He's made you a son in his family, an heir in his family. Saul, before God, you are part of his family. You are loved and you belong. And since, Saul, you now belong to the family of God, since God is now your father, that makes you my brother. And so, Saul, with me, and with the other believers, you are loved and you belong. And we read that when he said those words, brother Saul, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could suddenly see again. And clearly, his whole life went a totally different direction then and he goes on to become who we know as the great apostle Paul. So God's forgiveness and grace met Saul through Ananias, embracing him as a brother and not running from him as an enemy. And God's forgiveness is made real in our lives when we do this with one another. It's so powerful when you come before someone, first of all, maybe on the one side, and you apologize and say, I'm making no justification for my actions. I was wrong. That changes everything in a situation where there is fighting, where there is bitterness. And then on the flip side, when someone apologizes, when you say to them, I forgive you, I love you, and I will not hold this against you, does that ever lift the weight of the world 
off someone else's shoulders. Friends, that is what Christ has done for us. Can you do that for somebody else today? So much power in that. So that when you forgive someone, they will say to you, seeing your face, experiencing your forgiveness is like seeing the face of God and receiving his forgiveness. And all of this, everything we've said, brings us right to the very heart of Christianity because the the Christian message is not just ideas and concepts about who God is. We could say it this way. It's not just words about God. There are words. This, This book is filled with words, right? It's words about the fact that God exists, words about his character, words about how he's loving, words about how he will forgive us as we come to him through Jesus Christ. But the great thing about Christianity is it's not a philosophy. It's not just concepts and ideas or even just words about God as great and as important as those words are. No. Only within Christianity did the word become flesh. All our concepts and ideas about who God is expressed in words all became enfleshed. So that we don't just talk about God is loving as a concept or idea. We point to Jesus, God in human flesh, washing the feet of his disciples. We don't just say God is forgiving. We point to Jesus, God in human flesh, giving himself upon the cross as the sacrifice for our sins We do not just talk about all these things about God's character and what he is like. We point to God who took on human flesh and walked among us. God came down and could be touched, could be seen, so that we can point to him and say, God meets us through Christ. So then listen, when we look upon the face of Jesus, we don't just say like Jacob could say that seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. When we look upon the face of Jesus, we say, I have seen your face, Jesus, and seeing your face is seeing the face of God. Do you want to know what God is like? You look upon the face of Jesus, you watch Jesus act And you see that God has met us through the person of Jesus Christ. Not just ideas and concepts, but actually an encounter that enabled us to get through all storms. So wrap this up with two things then. First of all, recognize when God meets you through other people. It's a little bit of a guessing game, but I think you can figure it out most of the time. In other words, this week, if you're going through this week and you meet someone and you feel encouraged, you feel like, I want to follow Christ more closely, then suddenly recognize that moment and give thanks to God and say, God, you just met me through this other person. Thank you, God, that you would do this. When you recognize this, listen, you'll start discovering God is meeting with you way more than you ever thought. Instead of just sitting there saying, God, where are you? I'm not hearing a a voice from heaven. Start realizing that God's meeting with you through other people. And when you start to pay attention to it, you might just notice that God is meeting with you all the time. That's the first thing. Recognize when God meets you through other people. And then secondly and lastly, be God's hands, voice, smile, and feet to other people. 
God doesn't have to use any of us. He's almighty. He could, he could help other people in any way he wants to. But clearly, if you've read the Bible, one of the number one ways that God wants to meet with people is through us. Each of us has a very important role to play so that we are called to help others. So listen, Titus was God's comforting voice to Paul. How can you be a Titus to somebody this week and bring comfort through your voice or through what you might write to somebody? Ananias was God's hand of forgiveness to Saul. How can you be Ananias to someone this week perhaps who has wronged you and you can forgive them and let them know of the wonderful forgiveness of God? Maybe begin each day, right when you wake up, say, Father, I just want to offer myself to you today. Help me to be your hands, your feet, your voice to whoever I meet. I don't know who's coming into my life today, but help me to be a person who encourages, who comforts, who strengthens, who offers guidance. Help me, Spirit, just give me wisdom to know what to say and what to do in all of those situations. And then watch for opportunities. You never know who God might bring into your path. And I think this is more important than ever during this season of COVID where we're not constantly interacting with each other. We need to be a little more intentional. Maybe somebody comes to your mind right now. You think, I got to give that person a phone call. I'm going to send that person an email. I'm going to send that person a personal message or text somebody. If someone's on your mind during the week, as soon as someone comes to mind, why not just take a half a second, write a quick note, Send it off. Pray for someone. You never know. They might just be that person who is in need, and you might be the face of God to them. So this, uh, this morning, as we wrap all this up, I want us to just focus our hearts on what God has done for us in Christ. That God became a man. God meets us through a person. He didn't just stay up in heaven far and removed. No, he came down in the person of Jesus Christ. And now that is how we live as well. We, we imitate this. We bring real human hands, real human voices to those around us, just as God did this for us. So what I want to do right now is to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And why this is so important is Christians have done this for almost 2,000 years. This creed was written way back in the first centuries. Christians have repeated it for centuries because it's a very short way to express our beliefs. And the heart of it all is how God became a man and confesses our beliefs in who Jesus is. And then we'll sing a song and we'll sing what we believe. So as we're doing all this, let this sink into your heart of God became a man to meet with us. And how can you take your flesh and bones, your personhood, and meet with other people? Quick little side note, at the end it talks about how we believe in the Catholic Church. Don't stumble over those words. This was written long before there was a Roman Catholic Church. Catholic simply means the universal, the one universal church of God, as in all Christians, at all places, in all times. So let's recite the creed now together, and then let's sing it of what God has done for us. Wherever you are in your rooms, in your living rooms, say this together with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit 
and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.